Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, we're ready to take care of business today. Boy, I still love that introduction. I know we're talking about changing it to something else, but... uh still just love it the way it comes together taking care of business love the questions that have to do with taking care of business we've got a bunch of those today along with um, questions about how i schedule my time um, questions about writing and selling books got some questions about my amish background and how that affects me today something i enjoy talking about um, we've all got things that have impacted making us the people we are today but I value some of the things that came out of that heritage. Don't have a lot of bitterness about it like I see some people having, but just simply value some of those things, and they certainly do have application into the guy I am today. Well, I hope you're having a great week. We come through a holiday weekend here. Hope it was a pleasant time for you. Joanna and I spent a lot of time just kind of relaxing and playing and unwinding, but reading and connecting with friends, doing some things with other people that we normally uh, don't have in the context of a week. But uh, hope you had a great time and are ready for the remainder of 2010. And we're rapidly moving into the end of another year. Now, I just want to remind you, you can call and leave a question. If you want to leave an audio question, you had a couple of those today I'm going to try to insert here. You can use the number 304-729-4848. Again, that number is 304-729-4848. Or you can leave a question. Now, this gets a little complicated. I'm still trying to get used to this because I used to give you a particular email address and uh, my, my team wants me to change that where now you go to 48days.com forward slash listen and you can fill out a form there. What it does, the reason they're pushing me so hard on this is because I do get a lot of questions that are two and three pages long and it makes it, it, it takes a lot of time to try to even scan for a reasonable snippet that we can use on here. And it also increase, I think part of it is that it, it, uh, adds to my guilt in not being able to answer at all those questions when somebody has obviously put a lot of time and thought and effort and heart into asking a very complex question. But uh, by virtue of the numbers, I can't spend time answering those via email. And so if a question is sent in as a podcast question like that, then it simply gets skipped over. So the little form at 48days.com forward slash listen does uh, force you to keep the questions concise and more likely to be used here. Got some events coming up. We got an event coming up this week, the Coaching with Excellence, which seems to be a very popular event, one I enjoy doing a lot. Uh, The next one is going to be then in January. We've got next year's set out already. So if you're interested in turning your coaching or speaking skills into a real viable business, create income from that, you can look at the events we've got scheduled for January, May, and September of 2011. We do have one more Right to the Bank event this year. That's going to be at this month, September 23rd and 24th. Again, one of our more popular live events. But uh, we'd love to see you come here if you want to turn your writing into income. 
A lot of questions that I get here deal with writing and how to turn it into income. There are a lot of people who are want to be authors and those who go to the next step and at least get something down on paper or into a, a physical format uh, sometimes then are still struggling with, you know, what do I do now to make this the next Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or next Stephen King novel or the next Rick Warren book on spiritual self-help. You know, well, those are things we address in the Right to the Bank event. Going to have some uh, interesting people join us for that event. Uh, the next one coming up here, September 23rd and 24th, I'm going to have Matt Bauer here, who's publisher at Thomas Nelson Publishers, the largest Christian publisher in the world. Going to have my good friend Ken Abraham, who's at the top of his game in terms of writing celebrity stories. So he uses his writing skills, but writes for other people. So they have their books and he gets paid very well for that skill. Kent Julian will be here, has done four or five books himself with an interesting kind of format for how he includes other people, but then they become his instant sales team. He sells a lot of books because people who have co-authored sections are out there eagerly selling the books. So I'm going to have him share and a couple other people, but we're going to have some interesting people here to help you understand how to create your own unique application for turning your writing into income. Well, I want to start with a quotation. This comes from Dwight Eisenhower. Who says, if you want total security, go to prison. There, you're fed, clothed, given medical care, and so on. The only thing lacking is freedom. That's an interesting perspective from one of our former presidents. If you want total security, go to prison. We hear a lot today about people who want to be guaranteed that everybody will be fed, clothed, and given medical care. Well, he's saying, yeah, we can do that. Uh, Just uh, put those people in prison. But then they give up their freedom. Be careful about wanting to have things taken care of and provided for you. Recognize there's a trade-off that comes with that. Now, that even comes in in terms of the jobs that we have. Now, my thoughts on this are certainly not veiled or secret. But um, you have to recognize that if you have a job where they guarantee you a paycheck, a 401k, contribution, medical care, you know, vacations, holidays, company car, time at the company-owned condo on the beach, whatever it happens to be, I mean, those things do come with a trade-off in terms of your freedom. Now, that's okay as long as you have your eyes open about that, but don't expect total freedom in what you're doing and still get those kind of benefits. Those benefits come with a cost and a trade-off. Personally, I like to have my freedom, and I'll take care of those benefits on my own. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, anti-business or anti-employee at all. Just I know what fits me. And if you enjoy the position you've created for yourself, then fantastic, whatever that may be on the spectrum of changing work models. But you can't have both. Well, let me go right to the questions. Marilyn says, Dan, I'd like to do something like this. And she references a website where they search to find the grave of somebody who may have been an ancestor, thinking I could couple it with a few services like this, where it's you know providing things for people who are 
trying to find a headstone or create one or uh, find, trying to find a gravesite, antique photos online, helping people who like doing their own family tree but lack the time to retrieve census state other records and wondering what you think of this idea and if I could actually make money doing this. Well, Marilyn, I, I like you, I like the concept. I mean, it really is intriguing. And I know there are a lot of people trying to find birth parents and trying to find their ancestral tree that goes back to Adam. And I think that's a cool kind of thing to do. But I'm not sure either if you can make reasonable money doing it. It seems to me you have a one-time hit with customers, not something that they will be using repeatedly. And in that way, I'm not sure it's a good business idea. I worked with a gentleman one time who had come out of the insurance industry and he knew things were changing there and recognized he needed to take the initiative and do something different. And so we identified some criteria for what we were looking for. And I said, because he was not a real aggressive salesperson, a real go-getter, he was more of a relationship kind of guy. I said, let's find a business for you where you have repeated contact with the same customers, where there's a recurring revenue stream and you aren't starting over every month. Now, there are a lot of models for this. If you have bottled water in your office, that's not a decision you make every month. It just rolls over. It becomes very routine. If you have a cell phone, boom, that becomes very repetitive. It just rolls over. There are a lot of things where we lock into models where we pay monthly. I mean, I have a lot of applications for our business, uh, software kind of things that are set up, audio generator, uh, teleseminar, our shopping cart features. I mean, all of those things, we pay monthly fees for those. And I said, that's the kind of business that you need to find. So we went through some things, and he frankly looked at some business, found a, a business where they would create curbs around people's gardens, walkways, and so on. I said, no, that defies one of our basic principles and that you would just do that once, and then that customer you probably wouldn't see again for another 20 years. What we came up with is he bought a franchise for mobile dog and cat food delivery. And I said, boom, that's perfect, because you have that critical component that we were looking for, where every month you go right back again. They don't make a new decision. It just rolls right back in. You keep your customers for a very, very long period of time. Now, in this idea where you're helping people find their ancestors, decide on a gravestone and so on, I suspect that the marketing it would require to get people's attention and build trust and rapport with them initially is too big of an obstacle for the monetary return you're going to get. Now, that's my initial take on the business. Do some research and find that out. But that would certainly be my initial take on that. Well, let me include a, a live question here. This comes from our, our friend, Dr. West Connor. Hey, Jim, this is West Connor from MedicineCoach.com. I listened to your recent podcast, and you mentioned my name again, which smacked my lizard brain into remembering that a couple weeks ago when I saw you and we talked a while, I was going to call in with this question. You know, we've been friends for a few years now, and this is something that I've always wondered and just never got around to asking. And it's simply, what does your day look like? What do you generally do after tea and muffins with Joanne? Do you have a daily schedule that you follow to complete your work or just what is your average day like? And I just want everyone to know who's listening that everything Dan says about his lifestyle, the mound of mulch, the paths through the woods, the cars, the sanctuary, the wood carvings, Joanne's passion for helping at the women's prison, everything is 100% true. Trust me, I'm, I've been there. 
and you're not going to find two better quality people in this world than Dan and Joanne Miller. So thanks, Dan, for everything you do. Well, thank you, Wes, for your comments and your question is, what's my day like? Now, Wes knows our place, as many of you have been out here, and he sees the things that I that I talk about. And he references having tea and a muffin with Joanne in the morning. That's a pretty standard routine. Even if I go to an early morning meeting where they have bagels and things around and fruit and all that, I typically wait until I get back home and have that traditional muffin and cup of tea with Joanne. It kind of starts our day. We review what we're going to do, and then we go on our way and often don't see each other again until late at night. But that does kind of kick off the day. I'm very protective of my mornings. Let me just kind of give you a rundown of what I do in my days. My days are pretty scheduled, but they're in blocks of time. I don't I don't micromanage where, you know, this five minutes I'm going to be answering emails, this five minutes I'm going to be answering the phone, and so on. There are big blocks of time that may, in fact, include reading, thinking, or even sleeping. You know, we tend to equate work with production. Well, let me just start in my day. I, I'm an early morning guy. I like to get up. I'm usually up by 5.30 or 6. I have my uh, meditation time in the morning. Then I jump on the treadmill. I'm usually on the treadmill for a full hour. And uh, during that time, I'm usually reading. Now, I also have a TV on the treadmill so I can catch up with latest news if I want to, but I seldom do that. Usually, I'm just reading. Yeah, it's a little awkward, perhaps, but I can, I'm, I'm so used to doing it, so it usually gives me an hour of reading time. Then I shower, then I'm ready to go. I, Joanne, at that point, if I haven't had an early morning meeting, she's usually up and around, and then we have our cup of tea and muffin together. But then I have big blocks of time every day that are scheduled for doing particular things. And before I go through that, let me go back to what I said a minute ago. Some of these blocks of time may include reading, thinking, nerve, and sleeping. Now, we tend to be so production conscious in our culture that if you're not doing something, then you're not really being productive. And we would criticize somebody for that. But remember the old Abraham Lincoln Quote, he says, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. Now, we tend to jump right into chopping on a tree and we don't value that process of sharpening the saw. But see, I've read, now this is Wednesday morning, I've, I've read three books this week already. Now, that's a built-in use of my time. It's not a diversion or unplugging from my real work. I consider that part of my real work. You, you might also be familiar with Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Seven, habit seven is sharpen the saw. Now, sharpening the saw, according to Dr. Covey's principles, means uh, preserving and enhancing you know, the greatest asset you have, and that is you. You have to have a balanced program for renewal in four areas of your life, and those are going to include physical, social, mental, and spiritual. So part of this sharpening the saw that Cubby talks about and that Abraham Lincoln talks about and that certainly I've built into my own life have to do with physical, social, mental, and spiritual well-being. So physical, being on the treadmill in the morning or eating well or exercising or resting that's not unplugged from the things that are most important. That is very much a part of doing the things that are most important. The social, you know, over the weekend, we had a lot of time hanging out with friends and down at the lake and so on, making social and meaningful connections with others. That's part of the real deal. That's not 
just uh, something separate that's meaningless. That's part of the real deal of creating a life that matters. And mental, that may include reading, writing, teaching, spiritual. I mean, that may include taking a walk around my nature trail, uh, listening to music, you know, doing an art project, you know, prayer, meditation. All those kind of things are, are very much part of the real valuable time being put in. Now, we tend to have a model where you do anything you want to until 8 o'clock, and then, boom, you punch the time clock, and then you're you know, turning out nuts and bolts and putting pieces together or creating documents or whatever. That's all that matters. Even the breaks are considered to be breaks from work. Now, here, here's what my month or my week looks like. On Monday, I work on a newsletter that includes reading, writing, communicating. Uh, Tuesday... Now, that may sound like a lot of time for the newsletter. Certainly, I could create a newsletter in an hour. So the time spent with that as a focus does not mean that I'm just doing that. If it means that I read for two hours, then that's a legitimate part of the day as it's set out in what I really want to accomplish. Tuesday is the one day that I coach clients or do follow-up. Uh, with clients, some other kind of communication. Wednesday's the day I create a podcast. I do more writing, answer emails on Wednesdays. Thursdays is the one day I have meetings with staff members or a lot of times with other businesses. I mean, I spend a lot of time with other businesses that are similar to mine, just sharing ideas, just picking the brains of other people who've been successful and sharing ideas. Again, that's not time that is just wasted time or unproductive. It's very much a part of creating the business and the life that I want to create. And then Friday is a pretty intense writing day for me. I like to, a lot of things have happened during the week. So on Friday, I'm ready to really dig into whatever the current writing project happens to be and pretty much just do that during the course of the day. Now, I have, I have lunch meetings nearly every day, and that includes a lot of variety that I'm going to see people who are struggling with direction people that have a new book they want to promote, a new business idea they want to run by me. Um, Yesterday, after lunch, I ran by a local water business. Now, this is a place where they have plants and fish, things for water features like we've got. I picked up a new ultraviolet light bulb, got a couple of new plants, and asked questions about having fish but also clear water. I'm dealing with that right now. Uh, I can have crystal clear water if I keep it like a swimming pool. Now, we've got a a water feature where water falls down over rocks, goes into an initial pool, and then runs down through a creek bed into a larger pool at the bottom and then circulates back up. So I really want it to be kind of like a farm, outdoor, spring place. I don't want it to be just crystal clear like a swimming pool. But if I don't control it, then it gets really mucky. And so I'm trying to find that balance in between and the use of fish and plants and ultraviolet and so on. And I'm having fun fun doing it. I don't quite have it yet, but I'm getting close. But I did that yesterday after lunch. I spent probably an hour at that place. And then I swung by the county clerk's office and picked up new license tags for my big truck that we have around here. On the way home, I swung by tractor supply, picked up a supply of bird seed. Now, this is all in the middle of the day on a Tuesday. Did I feel like I was skipping out on work? No, not really, not at all. Those are all legitimate parts of sharpening my saw and also some of the benefits of having my own business. You know, Henry Ford said once that he did not want executives who had to work all the time. 
he, he really thought that those who were always in a flurry of activity at their desk were not the ones who were most productive. He wanted people who would clear their desk, prop their feet up, and dream about some fresh ideas. His philosophy was that only the person who has the luxury of time could create, could originate a creative thought. Now think about that. So he would encourage people to, to sit for ideas as he would do. Now, I don't suppose your boss has been bugging you about spending more time with your feet up on the desk and your eyes closed, you know, or listening to mood music, looking out the window. You know, that's not what most bosses do. Our, our culture tends to glamorize, you know, being under pressure with projects to turn out and so on. Having too much to do is really a badge of success. Or is it? I mean, when we look back through history, I mean, the Apostle Paul took long walks between cities, using the time to think and talk. You know, he had, Andrew Carnegie was the one, actually, now that I think about it, who, who really formalized sitting for ideas. He'd go in an empty room for hours at a time and sit for ideas. I mean, we know what Henry David Thoreau did. He wandered through the woods around Walden Pond. I mean, he would only come out for like six weeks a year to create income, and the rest of the time he devoted to thinking and contemplation and writing. So maybe you need to think more, sit more. Well, anyway, the West, I got carried away there. I mean, I uh, carried away on talking about the things that I do, but uh, I have a pretty structured schedule in terms of I have on there my personal exercise and contemplation. And I have on there date night with Joanne on Friday night. So I write in things in my schedule that I consider important. And if that means sitting for two hours or reading a book, it still then allows me when somebody calls and says, man, we're having a committee meeting. We really need you to be there. I can look at my schedule and say, I'm sorry, I already have a commitment. I consider those things that important that I don't allow them to be overrun just by somebody else's sense of urgency. Well, let me go on. Steve says, Dan, I'm a 50-year-old computer technical writer, 10 years, considering a career change to nursing. My disc profile is governor with a high I score. Now, a high I, if you're not familiar with the D-I-S-C terminology, is influencing. Somebody who's very outgoing, gregarious, social. Um, Steve says, I'm not sure if I can afford full-time BSN school, Bachelor of Science in Nursing School. Uh, technical writing jobs are scarce and the profession is deteriorating due to offshoring. Fear that nursing jobs are scarce as well. First career, auto mechanic. Any thoughts? Well, I want we include another question here. I've got another question that is that relates to this. Dan, you've authored two best-selling books on work and life contentment, 48 Days to the Work You Love, and No More Mondays. Could you share a few key ideas on how to find satisfaction at work? Now, this relates to Steve's question as well. The first thing to do when looking for work is look inward. See, we typically get the car before the horse. We look at where the business trends are, who's hiring, or what the hottest business opportunities or franchises are. And we miss that essential element of having an authentic fit with who we are. So the best way to find satisfaction in our work is to first look inward. Define your skills and abilities, your personality traits, your values, dreams, and passions. See, that's 85% of the process of having the confidence of being on the right track in our work. 
From those, we ought to see clear patterns emerge. Knowing those, we can then ask what kind of work would integrate and embrace what we know about ourselves. But that comes back to the 15% of the process. Now, to follow trends in the marketplace is a dangerous method for planning your career and life. In my work, I see lots and lots of attorneys, physicians, dentists, IT specialists, pastors who are just following a perceived trend and where the opportunities were rather than looking for an authentic fit in work that embraced their God-given talents, dreams, and desires. So, Steve, I'm troubled by your question in terms of your leaving IT because the opportunities are diminishing and now you're not sure about nursing as well. Nursing has thousands and thousands of opportunities right now. Hard to fill them all. So sure, there are opportunities there. But if you're going to move into that arena, you better be compassionate, nurturing, empathetic, understanding, good listener, loyal, brave, and true. I mean, those are the things that are going to be required for somebody to have a good fit in nursing. If that doesn't describe you, then by all means, don't do that. I don't care if there are opportunities 10 on every block in the city that you live. So here's where I find people thriving. It's not by defining where the opportunities are and moving toward that. I mean, you're going to always be chasing a rabbit if that's how you're determining your career and life direction. Where I find people thriving are when they discover something that they absolutely love, something they're passionate about. They learn how to do it with excellence. So it puts them at the top of the heap in that arena and they knock it out of the park. And that can be something that is just as uncommon as growing dandelions or carving wood. And there are people I know who are doing exactly those things, who are doing extremely well. So your opportunity for success comes in doing what it is you love doing with such a degree of excellence that you thrive in that. It doesn't matter what the economy is doing or or what the the normal general trends are in that. I mean, look at people who are leaving teaching because the dynamics of teaching are changing. That's absolutely right. There are people who I know who love teaching and who are thriving in that environment regardless of the normal trends. We know that the trends for real estate are down dramatically. My gosh, the number of new homes being built, the number of homes changing hands is off by about 30% right now. I mean, that's just been devastating to the industry as a rule. But as a rule doesn't apply to you as an individual. See, I can go into building houses. You can go into building houses right now or being a real estate agent and do extremely well because so many people have gone off in all directions. They're like rats leaving a sinking ship. They're gone. So it leaves more opportunity for the few who remain and do it extremely well. That's true in any industry. I would use that as a criteria for what you choose rather than trying to leave one professional career and start over in another one just because you think perhaps there are going to be opportunities there. I would not encourage doing that at all in a 100 years. Well, i got some other questions that have to do with just uh, business here that, that are great. Here's one. Dan, when you order books, I, I mentioned apparently recently that I ordered like 100 copies of The Go-Giver when it came out. It's a great little metaphor book and a, just kind of a twist on the old adage, you know, where we all have to be a go-getter. This is a go-giver, the power of giving and how it can accelerate your career and personal and business success. 
But the question is, when I order 100 copies of The Go-Giver, do I order them at a discount or directly from the publisher? Yes, I order those directly from the publisher. Now, that's not something you would typically get from an author. Most, Most authors don't have good buyback arrangements with their own books. Sad but true. Now, I do. I mean, people like Dave Ramsey and I understand that's something being negotiated on the front end. So we have deep, deep discounts. I mean, I might buy my books at uh, sometimes 90% off what retail is because of the arrangements that I negotiated on the front end of my publishing contract. So I, but, but these, when I go after other books, my first approach is going to be to go to the publisher. Typically, with a publisher, you can get 50% off retail just by asking. Now, that's not what I consider a deep discount, even at that, because you have to realize that Amazon is going to be selling a book often at 40% off of retail. So if you buy at 50% off retail and expect just to resell those, you don't have a whole lot of margin. Nobody expects to pay full retail for a book anymore. So I really look at other options as well if it's something that I want to just make money on. Now, with the Go-Giver, I mean, I don't know even how many we sold of that, but we use that as part of packages we put together and often I I will purchase a book in quantity just because I want to use it as a bonus as a free gift or as part of a package that we're creating but you can get discounts by going directly to the publisher you can go to the author in those rare cases where the author really does have deep discounts and negotiate your buying from them or you can buy books through liquidation I mean I buy a lot of books that are in remainder status. In the book terminology, that just simply means that the publisher is not promoting them anymore, and you can get those at deep, deep discounts. Here's a question that says, Dan, what percentage do you pay your contracted employees? Do you How do you calculate that? Well, we got to kind of change a couple terms there. I use independent contractors a lot, but Because they are independent contractors, they are not employees. Now, how I pay those varies dramatically. I don't have a cookie-cutter plan that fits everybody. A lot of them I pay just for projects. So if we're going to get a new book cover design, I mean, that's not going to be hourly. It's not going to be on a contractual basis. It's just going to be per project. So if it's $1,000 for the project, boom, when the projects deliver, that project fee is paid. I do have people who do get percentages of revenue generated. My daughter, as an example, now she has a base that I pay her uh, just to cover some of the time that I know she spends handling customer service and setting up events and so on. But her biggest compensation comes by getting a percentage of the net profit of live events that we do. So she does all the work. She creates all the promotion and the whole thing, gets it all ready. So I just walk into the room, have pretty much everything laid out for me. But then she gets a percentage of the net profit of those events. That's where she gets her big chunks of money. Um, I have people who handle fulfillment where our needs vary from day to day. If we do some specials, it may require long days. Those people, for the most part, are just paid a flat monthly fee to make sure that our products get out the door. Rather than my cost varying greatly, or rather than than us trying to calculate net profit on books sold, I mean, we may run a special where we have a thousand orders that need to be processed, 
But if it's a really deep discount where I'm liquidating inventory that I want to get out of the warehouse, our net profit may have been very little. That would be unfair to the people I have working in that area for them to get a percentage of net profit. So it wouldn't be an equitable compensation in that regard. So I just have a flat fee that they're paid for getting the products out the door. Now, some months, that means that they're compensated, if we were calculating it hourly, where they're compensated really well hourly, and other times where that drops down to a more reasonable kind of uh, compensation because of the quantity of hours that are required to get the product out. But I have a lot of different setups. I mean, it's not complicated. We don't, I'm negotiating right now with one of our VAs as to how she should be compensated. We started off with it being hourly. She's very reasonable about how she tracks time. If she spends one and a half minutes on something, I get billed for 90 seconds. So it's not that I feel like I'm being taken advantage of, but I have her doing so many things that we're wondering if it wouldn't be better for both of us to switch to a monthly retainer as a base. And then when there are big projects, it would just be on top of that. So we're exploring that. But there are a lot of ways to compensate people. But what you hear in this, clearly, I hope, is that I have zero employees. I don't have anybody who is an employee. Everybody gets a 1099 at the end of the year. And rightfully so. I'm not skirting what the law lays out or what the IRS expects on that. I mean, everybody that I have, I expect to have other clients and be open to doing other work. I don't force anybody to work for me only. If they do, they that's because they choose to do so, but it's not because I've structured their work that prevents them from working for other people. Okay, and this is Dan. Could you share a little bit about your background, your connection to the Amish? Now, the Amish have become very popular, kind of trendy to have business or have products that come from the Amish or you know, stop by a roadside side stand where the people are dressed like Amish. And frankly, it's been taken advantage of a million and one times. There's no question about it. There's a real popular wood-burning stove. Well, it's not actually wood-burning. It's some kind of a gas heater, I think, that's being sold, that developed by the Amish. Well, kind of, sort of. I mean, they got an idea that's similar to what some Amish did. But really, they paid some Amish to be the spokesperson people for that product and have knocked it out of the park because they've parlayed that kind of positioning. This is an Amish developed stove and they've just knocked it out of the park. I've seen, I know you've seen those kind of ads and it really is just taking advantage of the ethnicity there to do that. I guess that's okay. I, I would struggle a little bit with uh, milking that horse that much where you really expected people to I guess the the assumptions, well, I know the assumptions are that it's good quality, that it was uh, done well. I mean, we have pieces of Amish-made furniture in our house. Now, I know they are because I came up with those agreements in the original drawings with the Amish people who built them, and they built it and signed it on the back. I mean, I know where it came from, and yes, it is amazing quality. Some things that we show off when people come into our house, some of the things in the kitchen that are very functional for Joanne, that she loves, and they were Amish-made. And and we enjoy that connection. I mean, I enjoy that connection, but, but here is my connection, kind of just to get to the, cut to the chase on this. My grandparents on both sides, maternal and paternal, were horse and buggy Amish. No plumbing, no electricity. 
my parents in moving from Kansas to New York became very conservative Mennonite. Now, that's not always the direction, but it's not uncommon that somebody who was raised Amish then becomes Mennonite. There's still a lot of the same customs and some of the same look and some of the same legalistic kind of expectations. So my parents became conservative Mennonite. We slowly became more liberal, I guess, as in the way that it would look to outside people. Now, we did have cars from as young as I can remember. We had cars. That was part of being Mennonite as opposed to Amish. So we were never horse and buggy Amish. Now, the cars, though, were always black. My dad never had a car that was not black. I suspect that probably still has to do with some of my attraction to fast, loud, gaudy cars, which I have always had. I still enjoy flashy cars, and I joke about it at this point. I I suspect that I'm probably still at some point um, rebelling against my childhood. I guess we all do that, and perhaps that's mine. Uh, I don't do that overtly, but I who knows how much effect that had, the fact that we were only allowed to have black cars when I grew up. Now, we got running water in the house when I was in about the eighth grade. But frankly, this is something that is kind of an anomaly to me. I don't clearly understand. I need to ask my dad if I could catch him in one of his more lucid moments still, and maybe I could. I'm not sure if we didn't have running water in the house till I was in the eighth grade. I'm not sure if that's because we were so poor or because we were conservative Mennonite. I really don't know. We were very poor. So some of these things came on very slowly as my dad became more successful as a farmer. But uh, I'm not sure some of these things, how much they we did not have them because we were conservative Mennonite or because we were just that poor. We never had TV or radio in the house, and I know certainly we could have afforded that. That was not a money issue, but we never had TV or radio in the house. Those were worldly kind of distractions, opened you up to things that were seen as worldly, and we were going to be on the straight and narrow path, and that's a very tiny segment. Now, we did have a radio in the barn. You may wonder, well, why? You know, I could listen to rock and roll music out there, but that was not the intent. The intent was that was to listen to the weather reports because weather reports for a farmer were very important. So we had a radio in the barn. As my dad was bivocational, he was the pastor of the tiny Mennonite church in Johnsville, Ohio, and um, also a farmer. But my connection really continues. And again, as I mentioned, kind of at the the uptake of the show today, rather than harboring bitterness about the deprivation of my childhood, I value the wonderful things I gleaned from that upbringing. I mean, things like the fact that your word is stronger, a stronger bond than any written contract. I mean, today I see people trying to find loopholes in contracts. Well, if you gave your word, that should be enough. And I've always done business like that. I mean, I've done major consulting projects for companies like General Electric and Deutsche Bank and other organizations where I never had a written contract. Now, that may seem like a sloppy business. Perhaps it is. But I really stand behind. If I gave my word, then it's going to be done. doesn't matter if a better opportunity comes along. It's going to be done. I mean, most of my speaking engagements are done like that. I book a lot of my speaking engagements myself. I don't require a contract. I don't require payment in advance and those things. I expect that if an organization asked me and committed to me, then it's a commitment. Um, I had an organization not too long ago, it was a major 
it was a grouping of, of universities and I was going to be the, the speaker for their national event. And about 90 days out, I suspect it was, uh, they called me and said, wow, you know, we have now in that case, I did have a contract. I mean, they wanted it. So we had negotiated a, a simple contract that said, this is the fee. This is when it's going to be due. Boom. It's locked in. They wanted it for their protection, for their comfort that I was in fact committing to this. And so we did do that. But they called me about 90 days out and said, wow, this is a major disaster because of the struggle in funding for universities. This has never happened before in history, but that event has actually been canceled. They are not going to have that event the first time in history. And I said, is there anything we can do to modify the contract we have? And I said, yeah, we can modify that. I said, do you have it in your hand there in front of you? And they said, yeah. I said, why don't you tear it right down the middle and drop it in the trash? And they were like, what are you talking about? We have a contract. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to put you in worse shape if you're struggling already as an organization. Far be it from me to enforce the contract just because we have that written down. If the event's not going to happen, I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to speak. Tear it up and throw it away. Now, they were dumbfounded. But what happened with that, it increased. Now, I didn't do it just for selfish reasons. But what do you think the back end of that is? I mean, it increased my credibility with that entire organization, their center of influence, dramatically. And they're like, oh, my gosh. You know, would you be available for this? And out of that, I've probably gotten half a dozen other speaking opportunities in individual universities because of the way I handled that. Rather than digging my heels into the into the sand and saying, look, we got a contract. You better pay up or I'll turn this over to my attorney. Eh, that's one of the things from my Amish background and heritage. I just don't like to do business that way. Well... Another question about the Amish here. Let me get in a couple more of these. You've written on your blog and website about visits to Holmes County, Ohio, your observations on Amish businesses. From your standpoint as a consultant and a business person, what are they doing so well? Well, I do, you know, love visiting Holmes County. That's up in Ohio. It's kind of the northeast section of Ohio. It's funny because you don't have big towns like Cincinnati, Columbus, or Cleveland there. Most of the Amish environment, even though it's there's high population and thousands of businesses, it's not localized into big urban centers. So you have things like Wayne Door that's out in the middle of the country in Mount Hope. I mean, out in the, and, and, I mean, it's not in a city. It just started on somebody's farm and grew from there. And that's the way most of those businesses are run. It always amazes me when I'm up there and I'm driving down some little gravel road and I meet a couple 18-wheelers. And I think, you know, somewhere back here, there's a thriving business. They're getting deliveries or having pickups. And But I admire the way the Amish businesses keep overhead and low. Uh, they start businesses on personal property a lot. They use family members as employees. They understand uh, the true value of apprenticeships. They teach somebody a trade while they're young. That's part of their education, not just something they get to after they've gotten their education. Now it's time to work. No, gee, what a novel concept. Work can be part of your education. So there are a lot of things that I see that they do really well. And again, probably part some of those things that I've carried over into my own business. If you've heard me talk about the sanctuary, I'm working out of a converted barn and a cow pasture outside of Franklin, Tennessee. So I love that kind of model. 
and I've seen that be extremely successful for the Amish people and, and certainly for myself. Now, I mentioned all the live events that we've got coming up here. I mean, you know what kind of a rental fee that I'm paying to the Marriott Hotel to hold a live conference. Zero. Well, we hold it out here in our barn. You know, when uh, the Hilton says, well, if you're going to serve Cokes to people at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you have to have a $7.50 charge because that has to come through our union catering services. Well, that's not a factor out here. We just do whatever we want to. If somebody wants to bring something and share it with everybody, which they frequently do, they're welcome to do that. So we have a lot of freedom and flexibility out here because of the way I've structured my own business. And, yeah, it has some of the same characteristics of why the Amish people have been so successful. You know, well, here, let me sneak this one in. One thing that I often see played out, someone writes, is the important role of faith in business. What kind of a role do you see faith or spirituality playing in having a fruitful, rewarding career? Well, I think we often see a real artificial dichotomy or split between what is spiritual and what's secular. Personally, I think that if we are spiritual beings, then everything in our lives is spiritual. See, I'm not a person of faith for 58 minutes on Sunday morning and then just a a worker bee the rest of the week. My work ought to be an expression of my faith. And trust me, you know, what I'm doing on Thursday mornings or Wednesday mornings here tells people more about what I believe and value than looking at the back of my head for a few minutes on Sunday. Our work is our best opportunity to live out our faith and our calling. It's where we should get a sense of peace, accomplishment, and joy. And, and really, I also believe it's our greatest opportunity for true ministry. So we should accept the challenge to use our strongest skills and talents in our daily work then we'll experience that sweet spot that we all crave. And that's where we're also going to find financial rewards that just show up in unexpected ways. Let's see, I've got time for one more. Let me grab one here. Well, let me just do this. Dan, what are some of the typical challenges you see people encountering in today's economy? You know, I see too many people waiting until the economy gets better. I don't know what that means. And personally, I don't want to wait a single day to do something with excellence and be rewarded for doing such. I mean, I'm not going to wait. I mean, I don't know how the people in Washington, D.C. or Wall Street are going to define this recession or turn down that we're in. What if all of a sudden they predict that it's going to last another five years? Am I going to put my life on hold and wait till the economy gets better? Uh, not this old farm boy. I'm going to be planting corn and harvesting soybeans or whatever it is that I do in my work. And I'm going to be doing it with excellence, no matter what those people in far off places are talking about. You know, I I really do believe that the word recession is something they throw around in Washington, D.C. or Wall Street, but it has a little impact on what I do daily. My chances for success aren't dependent on what happens in the White House, but on what happens in my house. Now, I'm not just taking a stick-my-head-in-the-sand approach to this. Certainly, I care about what happens in Washington. We need to be involved. But on a day-by-day basis, I'm not going to just be absorbed in thinking, complaining, worrying, wringing my hands about what's happening there. I'm going to be getting with a program right here in Franklin, Tennessee, and taking advantage of the opportunities right here around me. So because of that, you know, there are some people that assume that now must be a terrible time to start a new business. 
See, I really think they're absolutely 180 degrees wrong. A lot of great businesses started in recessions. The competition is less. And with today's technology, it's never been easier to start your own venture. And, and with the demise, the implosion of a lot of the big monolithic companies, we're seeing an explosion of small, streamlined entrepreneurial businesses, exactly the kind of business that our country was founded on. I think there's a lot of healthy correction taking place. We had allowed a, a whole lot of artificial business models and structures to creep in. I mean, just, this is a, a biggie, but I mean, p paying people for results rather than their time is a healthy business transition. But now that rocks the boat for a lot of people where a company says, gee, I don't care how many hours you work, but I'm going to pay you for what you produce. Now, that may go back to what I said earlier when, I mean, how are you going to get paid for thinking and creating? But that old model about sharpening the saw, taking four hours, if you have six hours to cut down a tree, you spend four hours sharpening the saw that Abraham Lincoln talked about. You can do that and still be paid for results. Because if you think that you're going to create and produce less in two hours, when you're fully prepared, then you will in six hours where you're not prepared, you're wrong. I mean, if you think that you just got to produce, produce, produce. And I see people, you know, I see people in real estate who are just available 24-7. They're available every single minute of every day. They take, you know, pages and text in the middle of church service on Sunday morning. They can't unplug for an hour because they got to be available. I mean, that's nuts. That's nuts. That'll limit your productivity, not increase it. Take time to take a deep breath. So if, you are, if you're transitioning from being paid for your time to being paid for results, I still believe in the process of sitting for ideas, of thinking, meditating, contemplating, reading, listening, spending time with others, exercising. Those are still all legitimate things because I think you'll create more value in those focused times of productivity than you will if you deplete all those other areas of personal excellence, thinking that you're just putting more time on the production side. Well, hey, that's a good place to kind of wind down here. You know, I had a couple other live calls that I didn't get to. We'll do those another day. We're out of time here. I'm going to wrap things up. Join us for one of our live events here, Coaching with Excellence, right to the bank. Love to meet you. Love to hear your personal stories. I never get tired of that. Hearing the things that you're doing out there in real life to create a meaningful life. And, of course, I want to encourage you, as always, to enjoy the process of living, learning, and working. Be committed to finding or creating work that for you is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.